Welcome to Epiphany Fellowships Podcast. My name is Dr. Eric Mason, lead pastor and founder of Epiphany Fellowship in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. Our desire is to see people everywhere show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing so that you can tune in every week to check out new messages. God bless you and take care. Allow me, rather, don't let me, allow me, sounds better. Allow me to express my sincere gratitude to Epiphany Fellowship, to its leadership for the invitation to share um, how God meets me in his glorious word. When I first got the invitation, the very first thing that went through my mind was, how many people said no? (laughs) Like, I started to automatically think how low was I on the list, because it's summertime, so everybody's on vacation, sabbatical. But then my heart just got happy, and I said, yes, Matt, quick. Um, And and let me tell you why. I kind of feel personally connected to this place, and and I got to give you a very short testimony. So so I got saved and baptized at the age of 30. So I'm still still fairly new to all of this. And and in 2008, you know, as most inner city communities, there's, there's a lot of storefront churches and, and you end up in these places and you hear all sorts of stuff from all over the place. And, and with the internet, I started exploring and I started to hear all this really good preaching and all this stuff, but I never heard anyone that talked like me. Um, and then I remember once, I don't know if it was through some Acts 29 thing or what, um, hearing uh, Pastor Eric Mason talk about uh, suffering in the role of sanctification. And he was kicking it out of Romans. And I was like, word, you could talk like that? Why, why nobody ain't ever telling me that? Yeah, I just got shamed into doing. And, and, and this idea of grace at work, even through suffering, just kind of like blew my mind. And I started to follow along. And then I remember when this whole thriving thing started. Um, we found out about it, and, and three of us drove up here and kind of sat over there in that corner in the back. And I think it must have been the second year it was on. So, so it's crazy to me that God would use tragically broken people Amen. to do a beautiful work for his glory. So thank you. Thank you for um, this place. Thank you for this people. My, my sincerest prayer is that God would continue to use this place and use this people for, for his glory and the good of Philly. And, and what you do has some reach, because it reached out to me in the South Bronx. So, so imagine the possibilities of God's grace if we would only just pay attention. So I, I pray that through my faulty preaching today, um, the Holy Spirit would cause you to pay attention in a new and powerful and undeniable way. Um, I'm going to be working out of Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. I know this is a CSB church. I still got the ESV. And, and I confessed earlier to Pastor Larry is because I'm mad superficial. And I just like the way this Bible looks better. <laughs> My wife says they must have missed the diagnosis on me when I was young. She's an educator. So I apologize. So the text is uh, Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, and the title is God's Great Love. I pray knowing, if you've been a Christian for a minute, you know this. Um, 
I pray that this would serve as a healthy reminder of God's grace and his power. And if this is totally new, you're going to have fun. Please allow me to read the scripture for today. We will be in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Then I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump in. Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Please pray with me. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. My prayer, God, is that you would use my faulty speech and my imperfect preaching to stir the affections of our hearts towards your son and make us more aware of the power of your grace. Father, I just pray that you would meet us in an undeniable way and that you would bless this time that we have together. We pray this in your son's beautiful, powerful, and magnificent name. Amen. 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 So a lot of times in preaching, you would hear a lot of preachers say things like, well, we're going to unpack the text, right? And you got to say that because sometimes the text needs unpacking. But that is not the case today. The apostle's point is clear. It's clear. So this is my one point for the whole sermon. You ready? Jesus died on behalf of ungodly people. Jesus died on behalf of ungodly people, not good people. He died for sinners. He didn't wait for sinners to get good. The Bible says that Jesus Christ died for folks who were and still are sinners. And this is what I call God's great love. That's the title of today's sermon. So if you look at verse 6, we're just going to walk through the text. Is that cool? Amen. Cool. While we were still weak. While we were still weak. While we were still powerless. While we were still morally frail. And frail is one of those words, right? You think of something when you think of frail. While we were morally frail. So we're not talking about physical strength. We're talking about spiritual vitality. While we were morally failed, frail, um, failure, yeah, incapable of summoning up strength to save ourselves, it was in that sorry state that God moved on us. Now, I come from a place, and this is a little saying we have, I, I live in a city that's a moved or get moved on city, right? I'm going to give you a little mental picture. How many of y'all been to Times Square? I use this madness, right? Native New Yorkers hate Times Square. We don't go there. It's full of tourists. Now, they're made in the image of God, and I love them. But when I'm trying to get home or on the train, I don't like them. And the reason I don't like them is because they're walking around looking at everything. Right? And New Yorkers get this, we get this bad rap. They say that we're rude. We're not rude. We just direct. And Philly got the same vibe. I heard people getting cursed out on the street. I know. It's direct. So when we say moved or get moved on, you're not waiting for someone to stop admiring the lights and the buildings. We just push them out the way. 
We give them, you know, that Holy Spirit shrug. Because <laughs> we need to get somewhere. And if you allow me to kind of make this connection, this is kind of like how I felt pre-Christ. I was walking around admiring all the monuments of man, trying to figure out how do I get there, how do I do this, how do I do that. And I needed to be moved on. The Holy Spirit needed to move on me while I was admiring men to get my attention back on Christ, to fix my gaze back on Jesus. And I'm grateful for that. And that's the way it is. God moves on us to save us from something. He does so because if not, we're facing the wrath of God. So everyone knows Romans 1.16, right? Y'all know Romans 1.18? That's what we're getting saved from, the wrath of God. So now he saves us because he needs to save us from something. From like the spiritual sightseeing that we do. Where we just look around and admire what man makes. Instead of looking at him. And him alone. So not only does he move on us. But if we keep looking at the verse. It says that he moves on us at the right time. One thing that comes automatically in my mind is. Is there ever a bad time? Is there ever a bad time to get saved? Nah, right? So what does at the right time mean? What does that exactly mean to folks? Well, there are some scholars that would say that at the right time means at the right time in redemptive history. The nation of Israel got to sit a minute. They got the covenants. They got the promises. They, they got the judges. They got the kings. They had the prophets, and they still couldn't get it right. Then they got 400 years of silence. So some people would say that that's the right time. The other folks would say, well, the right time is whenever you get saved. And I'm not here to argue for one or the other. What I am here to say that is um, that the right time is always the right time because it is the right time and it fits God's purpose. Amen. So we need to understand that. Um, the other thing is we, we need to see that salvation wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't a response to human behavior. It wasn't as if we catch God off guard with our sin. It ain't like he's sitting up on a cloud somewhere looking at us going, oh, snap, Rich sinned. <laughs> Doesn't shock him. Salvation isn't an afterthought. It's always part of his plan. One commentator notes that this is the way this was always uh, intended to be. God always intended to save us. Didn't catch him off guard. Keep looking at verse 6. Christ died for the ungodly. That doesn't sound very encouraging, but it is. It doesn't sound hope-filled or full, but it is. Because we, beloved, are ungodly. And he died for us. And we need to know that. Um, if you look at verse 7... It starts to get a little deeper. Um, let me read it real quick. Uh, verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. No one dies for bad people. Let's keep it a buck. You won't even tell a bad person to stop. 
you just leave them where they're at. Because they deserve it. They should know better. That's us. God didn't do that. He did not do that. He died for us. One commentary notes, God's love triumphed where human love failed. So this whole salvation thing hinges on what? Love. God's great love. But it's a different type of love. It's not the human love that we know. It's not based on behavior or response to behavior. It, it's totally other. Because God is totally other. And we need to know that we are not like God. But to his praise, he is not like us. God's divine love is greater than our human love. And this is what um, one author entitled uh, the, the Mystery of Ministry. Now, why am I using the word ministry? Well, if you have ever in your life received the offer of new life in Christ, if you have ever rested and trusted for Jesus, in Jesus, on Jesus, for salvation, then you are a minister. Every member of the family is a minister. One body, many parts. We may fulfill different roles, but this is all one act of worship. Pastor Larry mentioned it when he talked about the money. Right? We're going to continue to worship. When you get greeted at the door, that's worship. When the coffee gets made, that's worship. When the children get the gospel preached to them, that's worship. Every member ministry. But the thing with ministry is it can trick us and deceive us. It's intoxicating. It could make us think that we are more than we ought to be. Um, so I was reading a book entitled In the Name of Jesus. It's by Henry Nouwen. I'll say what I said the first service. I'm not even going to front. It's a small book. That's why I read it. <laughs> but I came across this, this, this little passage, and I want to read it to you because it reminded me of God's love in a way that I needed to be reminded. So my prayer is that it will remind you as well. You ready? And I quote, we are not the healers. We are not the reconcilers. We are not the givers of life. We are sinful, broken, vulnerable people who need as much care as anyone we care for. The mystery of ministry is that we have been chosen to make our own limited and very conditional love the gateway for the unlimited and unconditional love of God. Verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. So God moved when we weren't because he knew we would never be. This verse is a great demonstration of the love of God because the cross is the demonstration of the love of God. So Martin Lloyd-Jones, an old English preacher, I think he's Welsh. I just wanted to say Welsh. I think he's Welsh. On verse 6, 
verse 6, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. About that verse, he says, I believe that there is no greater statement in all of the Bible of the love of God than in that verse. And I believe that. I amen that. But if that's true about verse 6, I think that there's no greater demonstration of God's love than in verse 8. I wholeheartedly believe that. And the love of God, um, this love, the emphasis on, is on the love of the Father. So this is that first John 4.10 stuff going on, right? And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he, it makes sense. So this verse is doing the same thing. It's putting the emphasis of love on God and not us. So it's not about our love for him. It's about his love for us. You see how that subtly changes our posture, right? In one way, we come at him like we think we fly. The other way, we come over spiritually bent. That's the only posture to receive the love of God. We need to be a bent over people. And here's the thing. A lot of folks, when they talk about the cross, they say the cross is the example of, of Jesus' love for us. And he had to do that because we had to endure the punishment of, of the Father. So we, we separate them. That's not good. Because here's the deal. Jesus' love is the Father's love. You ever read John 17? Right? Y'all know what that says, right? He goes on and on, over and over, talking about how the Father and I are one. I pray that they and, and myself, I and them are one like you and I are one. He says this over and over again. So if that's true, and we know it's true because Jesus said it's true, then Jesus' love is the Father's love. Christ's action on the cross is the Father's actions on the cross. Remember, salvation isn't an afterthought. It's not a response to our human behavior. The Son and the Father are one. This wasn't an accident. This wasn't an old snap. Let's go all the way back to the garden. Y'all remember the garden, right? When God spoke everything out of nothing. And he made man and woman. He put us in the midst of perfection. He even gave us dominion. And he allowed us to name things that he made. Is that not great love? I don't let nobody take credit for my stuff. I get mad. People steal my jokes all the time. It kills me. But something interesting happened in the garden that we got to talk about real quick if we're going to understand God's great love in this passage rightly. So he, he makes man and woman in his image. He puts them in the midst of perfection. And then, in a, in a, eternal, eternally speaking, in a second, they disobey him. They break the rules. And when they do that, as the scripture tells us, that their eyes were open. They realized that they were naked. So they tried to sew themselves some clothes to cover their shame. And it didn't work. So in the cool of the morning, which we should not skip by, God walking in the cool of the morning in the garden to hang out with them. This is, where, this is God's great love. Again, it's not about our love for him. It's about his love for us. He walks in the cool of the morning to us before it gets hot. He comes to us. And God knows everything. But what does he do? He's a good father. He calls out, your Adam, where you at, Papa? <laughs> at least that's how he does it on my block. 
Maybe not here. How many, you had a lot of Puerto Ricans in Philly? Some? All right, and over there, everything is Papa. Where you at, Papa? We're hiding. Word, why are you hiding? We're naked. Okay, who told you you were naked? Why were they hiding? Well, they sinned. They felt shame. They tried to cover their shame. It didn't work. So what does God do? He kills something. Then he makes clothes for them. He clothed them with what he killed. Salvation is not an afterthought. Because we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Now what does that do for us? That means when God the Father looks at us, he doesn't see sin and shame. He sees his son. This is God's great love, that we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. This is the mystery of ministry, that he would choose to use us. Who's us? The church. We. You and I. And, and I got very strong beliefs about what the church is. And I'm going to read something that I wrote because I wanted to make sure I didn't jack it up and I got it right. And, and this is as, as sincere and as honest as I can be about what this thing that we do that's called church is. And I just want to read that and then I'm going to kick a little more and then I'm out. Now I believe that the church is made up of tragically broken yet astoundingly beautiful people that are being brought together to display the great work of the Lord Jesus in the world. And that we, the church, you and I, are a picture of good news that is already here and is still yet to come. And I also believe that our faithful response to the great gift of grace is to take the good news of the king and the ways of his kingdom out into the world in such a way that it would break through and disrupt the quote unquote everyday and same old with the glorious grace of God and his divine goodness. I believe that. I also believe that it is the collective call of the church to make sure that every child and every woman and every man has the opportunity to experience Jesus and his justice. The church, as of late, <laughs> has made the mistake of, of preaching a, a gospel of personal salvation without an ethos or an ethic of the kingdom. God comes for broken people. But to restore everything. That's why we named the church Restoration. Because I knew God was coming for all of it. Not just for my heart. My heart is a part of it. But what, what can God do with a collection of broken people? Well, he can build something beautiful with that. We puzzle pieces. We're divine pen strokes on God's paper. He's writing with us. So by the time you bounce from here, what's your story going to say? What are you going to do with the great gift of grace? Yo, listen, this is, I'm a, can I just talk plain? All right. <laughs> My community isn't that much different from any other inner city community. It's filled with nonprofits. 
You know what they do? At best, treat the symptoms. Y'all heard that old Chris Rock stand-up? The money's in the comeback? I ain't even going to say nothing else. Now, all of these things are in place, and they're good. They serve its needs, but we can't depend on them to make a community whole. We can't depend on them to make people whole because people are in problems to fix. There are people to be redeemed. Now, I have no special skill set, but I know I used to break night at the bodega every night. For some reason, that wasn't working out too good for me. But in the master's hands, all those things are redeemed. And now all those things that used to be a burden are a blessing. And they work different now. I have no way to explain or articulate that other than it's God. It has to be. This is what he, do, this is what he does with, with broken people. This is what he does with us. He saves us from something, his wrath, but he saves us towards something, his kingdom. So if, if you... When, during the worship, right? I said the, the worship team was flexing because I preached short. Like, I'm almost done. I'm just talking to fill up time because it says they got mad time on the clock. <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. I'm a little silly. Pastor came up and he was like, you get used to this because this is how it's going to be in eternity. Psalm 27, 13. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord where? In the land of the living. Glimpses of the kingdom everywhere you go. Can I tell you what I feel about worship? So I told you about the church. My mind works funny, so here we go. I view worship as being in a bag. A big old black hefty bag. And every time we say Jesus, we poke a hole in the bag. And every time you poke a hole in the bag, light comes in. So you keep worshiping, you keep poking holes. All of a sudden, this thing that was dark is now flooded with light. And as it gets flooded with light, you start to notice and look at everything. There's a little Plato allegory of the cave stuff here, if you guys like that stuff. But, but what you start noticing when you look at it is not only what's around you, but yourself. And you start to realize who you are. And after a while, you don't like it. So since I'm Puerto Rican, I get duct tape <laughs> to tape up the inside. That thing fixes everything. So we put it up there to try to block the light. And it works, right? It gets dark again, but there's something strange goes on. I already know what everything looks like. Because once the light enters in, that's it. Darkness is ruined. It's been disrupted. So I got no choice but to rip the duct tape off. I got no choice but to live in the light. Because whether I try to hide for the light, the light is always in me. And it's dying to not only illuminate my soul, but to break out and shine on everyone else as well. This is what church does. And if I'm keeping it a buck, can I? The work that was started in this church is a big deal. I don't know if y'all know that. The hood had almost no representation. I didn't know you can talk like me and preach. I didn't until I heard it. I didn't know what church planting was. I didn't know you had to raise money. I'm poor. Who am I going to raise money from? I'm inside of a system that don't benefit me. 
And this is what it is. So when they read that little short bio earlier, like I, I really want to see a church planting movement break out in the South Bronx. Because I'm worried, I, I, I called Eugene Peterson my old white pastor. And, and I think everybody from the hood should have an old white pastor. I do not know him. I read his books. It sounds like I like him. Because I like how he talks. He talks like me. Everything is flowery and ugh. It just sounds weird. But he talks about the kingdom of God being primarily rooted in the local community and prayerful without ceasing. Like, it is my greatest desire to be known and not seen. I don't care about that. I care about being known, known to God. And, and to be known to God, I got to be about his work, not mine. This thing that we do, we all do. You do. What are you going to do with the great gift of grace? What are you going to do? The light already broke in. It's never going to be the same again. You can't go back to who you used to be. Born again people don't do the same dead things. And this is what meets us in this text. I'm going to go read it again. <clears throat> for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God, and I love the but gods in scripture. Y'all caught that, right? The but God, something always good comes after that. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I'm going to share my favorite but God with you now. Y'all know Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, like right, the, the gospel in 10 verses. It's just, a, just beautiful. Makes you feel bad and good all at the same time. And y'all know, right, that the good news is only good. It has to be bad news first. There's something about that that it just works that way. So it makes you feel bad and good. So uh, Ephesians 2, uh, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. Like that but God. And then it ends with verse 10, where it says, But we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works that he prepared beforehand that we would what? Walk in them. That word workmanship, when I looked it up in the Greek, poema. If you're Spanish, poema, or if you can figure it out by now, it's the word we get our English word poem from, yeah. right? So in my little bodega philosopher way, when I read that verse, I'm going to give you the rich translation. We are the poetic expression of God's goodness here on earth. How will they know if they can't see it? You, you can't just preach that. They have to see it. Because there's always going to be a what next. What now. You can't just hit and run. You got to be present. In our church, we say our most important ministry is the ministry of showing up. We, we want to embody a theology of presence. We, we, we want to think deeply about the incarnation. Isn't that crazy? God came into his own. So if he did that, everywhere we walk is holy ground. We are a spiritually barefoot people. One last time and I'll bounce. For while we were still weak, at the right time, 
Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your beautiful and powerful word. Thank you for the gift of your son, God. Thank you for saving us from something, saving us to and towards something. Thank you for allowing us to partake in your beautiful redemptive work here. I pray, God, in gratitude for the gift of salvation, but also for the way that you use your church to be light. God, I pray for this place. I pray for this people. I pray thanking you for what they've meant to me personally. And I pray that you would continue to use Epiphany Fellowship for your good pleasure and for the good of your people. And as always, we pray all these things in your son's powerful and magnificent name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to today's message. I hope that it was a blessing to you and it was aiding in your life to help you to show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. If this message has been a blessing to you, we want you to consider partnering with us in ministry so that we can maximize what God has called us to do locally, nationally, and internationally. You can go to epiphanyfellowship.org, go under give, and consider donating. Thank you. Take care. See you next week.